Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Inland Hills Church. So excited that you're here, whether you're in the room or online. And if you're new around here, just to give you a little bit of heads up what we do, um, we try to follow Jesus here. So Jesus called us into life with him and a certain way of living that's very different than lots of people live. And we've just found that to be the absolute best way to live. So every week we think about that, we study about that, we pray about that. That's a little bit about what we do. We're starting a new series today called Invite Culture. And we're gonna talk about what it looks like over the next several weeks, what it looks like to invite other people to consider following after the way of Jesus. It's this word that's used for it a lot of times called evangelism, which is a word that may, uh, may give you cold sweats if you've had experience either being evangelized or trying to evangelize someone else. And that's, that word is just to share the faith with someone else. Before we get started though, I need to confess that I made just a cardinal mistake today, which is that I wore a shirt with a picture on it. And after first hour, a whole bunch of people kept asking me what was on my shirt, which means they did not hear anything. I said, I told all those people they have to come back to center. So camera four, Ava, can we just get really tight on this? Let's just start off. Let's just get all the mystery out of the way, okay? This is like a Polaroid camera, old school. This is what this is. You don't have to wonder about it for the next 40 minutes, okay? That's what this is. Also, someone said like, oh, I thought it was a DVD player. How old is your DVD player? Like, no, that's not what this is. So, okay, thanks, Ava. Appreciate it. All right, moving right along. When I was in college, I majored in religion. And I took a class that was an entire semester on the concept of evangelism. Three hours a week, every week for, for three months is how often I was in that class, which means today's sermon could go very long. But, but I, it was a lot of like, hey, what did it look like for them to share Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus in the first century? What did it look like? historically for the church to do that. What does it look like today in the 20th and 21st centuries? What was when I was moving into that class? And then at the end, the last week of class, we had to actually go talk to people about Jesus, almost as if it wasn't enough to just have information about evangelism in our heads. We actually had to do it. And the idea was you need to talk to a couple of people you, you know well who are not currently followers of Jesus, talk to them about Jesus. But then we also had to do the thing that we were all like basically scared to death of, go talk to someone, like cold call someone about Jesus. Like, so we, we had a method for that. We were supposed to approach people in the local mall in Marshall, Texas, and just randomly start talking to them about Jesus. It did not go well. So the, the first conversation I got cursed at, the second conversation I got the middle finger, which was nice. The variety was appreciated. And then the, um, the third conversation was a very kindly looking woman. She, she looked like she was in her sixties or seventies. And at that point I was tired of abuse and felt like, well, maybe she'll at least be nice to me. So I walked up to her and I began to give her the, the, the kind of spiel, the pitch that we'd come up with as a class to, to see if she'd be interested in engaging in a conversation about Jesus. And, and as I started, she just stopped me really quickly. And she said, you seem like a nice young man, but I grew up in a household where my, my father was a pastor and my brother became a pastor. And every Thanksgiving for decades, when I would go home, they would argue and fight about theology and God at the dinner table. You seem nice, but I'm just not at all interested in anything you have to say about this. And then she just walked away. And, and I just, I realized like people have these different starting places for an experience with evangelism or what evangelism is or how helpful it can or cannot be. Another guy I was, I was, I was behind someone. This was just a few months after that experience with that one in the mall. I was behind an older gentleman at the, at the movies. 
Um, and uh, I was going to see uh, the first Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire, a cinematic masterpiece. So I'm standing in line to get my popcorn, and there's an older gentleman in front of me, and there's like a 16, 17-year-old student who's manning the cash register, and he pulls up the guy's change, and the guy is supposed to get $6.66 back in change. And I could see it coming before it happened, and the older man looked at the young guy, and he was like, 666, you know what that means? And the student was like, I, I don't, I just, I get, can you just take your popcorn? Like, I just don't. And the guy was like, that's the mark of the beast. And the guy was like, I don't know what that means. And he was like, yeah, well, one day the devil's going to come. And like, like he just went all into the spill, went full apocalyptic revelation on the guy. And so I'm just behind it. This poor kid just wants to get the next person their popcorn. And the poor guy behind the old guy, me, just wants his popcorn. So this conversation did not go well. And you start to see like, okay, that guy thinks he's sharing the good news of Jesus, but he's going about it in such a weird way. And it's such, he has such a weird starting point that it doesn't feel like good news to the person he's sharing it with. Which begs the question, I think, what is the good news of Jesus? What is the gospel? What is it? So over the next several weeks, we're going to look at how to share it, but I think we have to start with what it is. And actually today, what I want to focus on is what it isn't. So next week, we're going to, we're going to dive into the New Testament we're going to really try to determine next week what it is that Jesus said the gospel was, the good news was, and why that matters today. Why should everyone be a follower of Jesus? Next week, we're going to spend a ton of time on that. Today, I want to talk about what the gospel isn't, because I believe that for many of us, we've been handed an incomplete version of the gospel, and therefore, we have a hard time sharing it with others because the way we've been told to explain it just doesn't quite feel like it matches up to the awesome experience that we've had personally with Jesus and our own transformation. Or perhaps some of us have been on the fence about Jesus because the version of the good news of Christ, the version of the gospel we've heard, just didn't feel like it was that relevant to our lives. So I want to briefly turn to the book of Mark chapter one, and we're just going to look at some ideas of gospel before we jump into what it's not. So Mark chapter one, verses one and two, uh, in the beginning of the new, your New Testament, if you have an English copy of it, there's four gospels. The four gospels are just four accounts of the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is probably the first one that was written. So it's probably the oldest one of the four. And Mark is also the shortest one. This is how Mark begins his gospel. He says, the beginning of the good news, the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. Now, if you were a person living in the first century in the Roman empire, like this audience would have been, and you would have heard about good news, the Greek word there is euangelion. If you would have heard the word euangelion, you would have associated that with the good news about the emperor or the empire. So when, when the emperor of Rome went out and had a victory over yet another group of people that they were fighting with, and they came back into Rome, into the city, there would be this, this pronouncement of good news that the emperor had returned and that Rome had once again been successful. Euangelion, the good news of Rome, the good news of the emperor of Caesar. But the good news that Mark is talking about has nothing to do with Rome. The good news that Mark is talking about is about Jesus, the Messiah. So he uses a word that everybody would know, but then he applies it in a way that no one would expect. The good news, the gospel, the euangelion about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. So not only is he speaking to people who are living within Rome, he's speaking specifically to Jews who are living within Rome. And in the first century, the Jews living within Rome had been waiting for centuries, over 400 years to be delivered from empire oppression. Like they don't get to run their own political affairs. 
They've been given some permission to worship at their temple and to do so, but they are basically everywhere they look, they see false gods and they're ruled by an empire, the Roman empire that they hate, all this stuff. They've been waiting for someone to come and to break this for years. In fact, Isaiah said that someone was going to come and deliver them. And so Mark begins by quoting what Isaiah said hundreds of years before this. Isaiah wrote, I will send my message ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Mark says, here's the good news. Here's the beginning of the good news. And the good news is everything I'm about to write. The gospel, Mark says, is all 16 chapters of this. The gospel is all of this. It's complete. That's the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So a lot of times in an effort to simplify the gospel, we end up oversimplifying it and missing out on massive and important parts of it. He says, there was a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. So John the Baptist is going to come before Jesus. And then after John was put in, G- in, in prison in the same chapter, Mark 1, 14, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. So when we ask the question, what is the gospel? It might be important for us to see how Jesus defined the gospel. And at its simplest level, this is what Jesus says. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, we're going to unpack this massively next week as to what this means. We'll talk about the kingdom of God and repenting and the good news and all of what that means. But today, I want us to just know that Mark is pointing to all of his gospel as being what the gospel is. And that Jesus is pointing to these huge concepts of kingdom of God and repentance and believing and good news as part of the gospel. Because today I want to spend time talking about what the gospel is not. In 1999, there was a movie that came out called The Sixth Sense. And if you've never seen it, it was really good. By the way, if you've never seen it, I'm about to spoil the ending for you. In fairness, You've had 22 years to watch this movie, and I do not feel sorry for you. Okay, The Sixth Sense starred uh, a child actor by the name of Haley Joel Osment and probably one of the greatest actors of all time, Detective John McClane. So these two were in this movie together. And we could say, like, what was this movie about? What is the plot of The Sixth Sense? And we could say that it's about a number of things. And when we say it's about those things, we wouldn't be wrong. It would just be incomplete. So here's something you could say the movie is about. You could say that, well, this movie is about a child who is struggling with uh, social anxiety and the psychiatrist who helps him to overcome it so that by the end of the film, he's got the lead part in the school play. The movie is about that. Or you could say, well, it's a, a movie about a marriage that is unraveled and a woman's coming to grips with the fact that she'll never relate in the same way to her husband again. That's technically true. The movie is about that. Or you could say, well, it's about a psychologist who failed with a former patient and now looks to redeem himself by helping a new patient with a similar problem. That's also what the movie is about. Or you could say the movie is about, I see dead people walking around like regular people. They don't know they're dead. This movie is about a young man who's been traumatized. Because he sees upset spirits, ghosts all around him. And the psychiatrist figures out that he's not lying, that his secret, that he sees these spirits and ghosts is real. And so he helps him to help the spirits so that the spirits can go away. Only to discover in the final scene of the movie that the psychiatrist himself is a spirit. (sighs) Minds exploded at the end of 1999 when that came out. By the way, if you haven't seen it, seriously, you owe it to yourself. It's $17.99 on Apple TV. Figure it out. So um, 
It's a great film. All of the descriptions I gave you of that movie were true. They were true. They just weren't complete. So today, I want us to spend some time talking about four American gospels, the evangelical gospel, the social gospel, the political gospel, and the prosperity gospel. All of them have truth in them. They're just incomplete. If you're a follower of Jesus and it feels like you haven't found words quite to capture the experience you've had, it could be because you've always heard the gospel articulated in one of these ways and you've figured out that that actually is far too small to contain the cosmic reality you've experienced. If you have considered following Jesus, but every time you've heard the gospel proclaimed, it just hasn't seemed like there's enough there to be helpful to you. It's possible that the problem is that you've actually heard it articulated in one of these ways. And one of these ways doesn't contain the full gospel and therefore is not that appealing. So just a few notes before we jump in. I know today is going to be a lot. This is going to be like drinking from a fire hose. I told my, my dad was here last week. My dad is very funny, very jokey. And I told him afterwards, like not helpful because I know I'm going to fire hose them with information next week. So the difference between one week and the next is going to be ridiculous. I promise next week won't be like this. Okay. But I need us to get this information out on the table because if we're going to invite people into our faith, we have to understand what our faith is and what our faith isn't. So let me just say that up front. I know it's a lot. Secondly, uh, I am very grateful for uh, two many people, but two that I'll call out specifically. A sermon given by uh, John Mark Comer at Bridgetown Church, super helpful in my prep from this. I am going to uh, be repurposing a ton of, of that and helping to lay this out. And a number of writings by a guy named Timothy Keller. I'm also going to be, uh, he's a pastor out of New York City. I'm also going to be uh, repurposing a number of his writings in order to make this work today. There's a lot of material, I know that. A third thing, I know that when you talk about other ways the gospel has been articulated and you critique it, it can seem like you're setting yourself up as kind of the arrogant judge who's pointing down to all the other ways. I know that that's a real tendency. So my hope this morning is not to give you the picture that most people are just wrong and Josh thinks he's the only one who's right. I don't believe that at all. I think that there's truth in every single one of these things. My hope is for all of us to recognize that none of them contain the fullness of the gospel. And what I want you to do is to be so compelled by Jesus and the fullness of his gospel that whether you've tried to follow him for decades or you're just considering him, you will wholeheartedly commit to following after him. That's my hope for you. And so in order to accomplish that, I just got to point out where maybe our imaginations haven't been large enough to contain what it is that he's doing for us and for the world around us. That's my hope today. I will probably misspeak. I will probably oversimplify. If you could give me some grace in that, I would really appreciate it. Not my favorite way to teach, but I do think it's helpful. Jesus kind of does this critiquing method. You know, he says like, you have heard this, but I tell you this. And so I'm trying to also like kind of model that a little bit what the, when we talk about what the gospel is not. I have plenty of problems in my own thinking. I know that I've, I've found many times over the years where I've been logically inconsistent or where I found new information that suddenly made sense of something. And I wish I'd had a sermon back because I definitely said that wrong at that point. So this is not a Josh knows everything and other people, not at all. This is me wrestling, grappling as a community, hopefully uh, with these different things. Uh, one, uh, one other thing I would just note, if you're uh, politically progressive, when I talk about the social gospel, you're going to feel pretty uncomfortable. And if you're politically conservative, when I talk about the political gospel, you're going to feel pretty uncomfortable. Are you ready? <laughs> Should be a fun day. I know if this is your first week, you're leaning over to the person you brought you like, really today? You had to bring me today. It's fine. It's good. First of all, 
The evangelical gospel. So key beliefs of the evangelical gospel. This is the one I grew up with in Texas where I grew up. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. You, if if you grew up in some kind of evangelical tradition, probably grew up with some version of the evangelical gospel. This is the version of the gospel that was proclaimed by Billy Graham and a lot of other evangelists starting after just after World War II. Um, And it became uh, an oversimplification in an effort to convert as many people as possible. And that cynically, if you're thinking they were just trying to pump up their numbers, but I think if you want to be generous about it, they were looking to convert people because they believed that their lives would be better and their eternities would be better if they followed after Jesus. So key beliefs. First of all, you are a sinner going to hell. Secondly, God loves you and therefore does not want that result for you. Third, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And fourth, if you believe in Jesus, you will go to heaven when you die. So for many of us, when we think of the gospel, we may just think that this is the gospel. Well, yeah, isn't that the gospel? Well, there are some really helpful things about formulating the gospel like this. There are some helpful things. First of all, uh, it takes the preaching of the gospel very seriously. And there have been a lot of religious traditions and denominations that have, you know, they've been full of Jesus followers, but when it came time to actually proclaim, to preach the gospel, to go somewhere and tell somebody about it, they've been really hesitant to do that. Or they just haven't emphasized it enough. The evangelical gospel so believed that people needed Jesus in their lives that they literally blanketed the world with missionaries and um, and evangelists in order to share it with other people. So it's something that regardless of your background, you can learn a lot uh, from looking at the passion that the evangelical tradition takes in preaching the gospel very seriously. Uh, It's a call to personal conversion. Now, if you grew up in an evangelical church, that may not seem that significant to you. But if you grew up in a Catholic church, a Roman Catholic church, or in a mainline Protestant church, it's possible that you could go your whole life and never have someone ask you to commit your life to Jesus. That you personally should make a decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life. That, that just coming and belonging and being a part, it's a great place to start, but there needs to come a time where you say, actually, I'm changing. I'm repenting. I'm turning from the thing I was doing. I'm going to do something different. And the evangelical gospel really gets that right. So I think that that's, I think those two things are really helpful. Some shortcomings, because again, it's not that this gospel is wrong. It's that it's incomplete. So, so hear me on that, but some shortcomings then, if, if this is the only lens you look at the gospel through, first of all, this formulation of the gospel isn't found in the new Testament. And that right there ought to give us pause. So just the, you know, God loves you, but you're damned to hell. And so he sends his son to rescue you. And if you want to go to heaven, you, you need to believe in him. That exact formulation, we have, Jesus gave lots of sermons about the kingdom of God. The first followers of Jesus gave lots of sermons in the book of Acts, and they never formulate it like that. Now you can pick out verses from like the book of Romans, for instance, to create a formulation of it. Again, it's not that it's untrue. It's that when they are talking about the gospel message to others, that is not how they talk about it. So so this formulation of the gospel isn't found in the New Testament. Secondly, um, this formulation of the gospel often means that there's no call to discipleship. To follow after Jesus is to really tell him that he's your boss and he has the right to tell you how to live your life. Like I'm going to transform, I'm going to change the way that I see the world, interact with the world, do things in the world because Jesus is my boss. And that takes a lifelong pursuit of Jesus in discipleship. Like, like when you make a decision to follow Jesus, there is the initial decision. You're a follower of Christ immediately. 
once you've decided to do that. But there is the ongoing discipleship in your life. And a lot of times, if, if discipleship or if, if evangelism is all about, hey, do you want to follow Jesus? Let me see that hand. Let me see that hand. Walk down an aisle, pray a prayer, those kinds of things. Then you might point to a time where you committed to that. But discipleship in that case almost seems like it's a, a side option for those who are really into that kind of thing. Whereas in the first century, people saw discipleship and salvation as intermingled. Like discipleship is, is, is the pathway to salvation. John Mark Comer um, listed a number of things that people have said about the gospel over the years to try and blow up this paradigm. And I, I really appreciate his list. So here's what his list is. See, the gospel, it's not about getting you into heaven, but about getting heaven into you. It's not about going up there, but about heaven coming down here. It's not just about a transaction, but about a transformation. It's not just about the transformation of an individual soul, but about transformation of entire societies of us. It's not just about what God wants to do for us, but what God wants to do in us. It's not just about what happens when we die, but what happens if we live. It's not just about going to church after you are saved, but about being baptized into the family of God with God as your father and other followers of Jesus as your brothers and your sisters and your primary familial allegiance. Amen. Thank you both. The gospel is so much bigger than the evangelical gospel can contain that we miss out on all this other goodness and beauty Like the gospel is about saving you from your sin. That is part of it. There's no doubt about that. But hitting the mark is not just living perfectly after that. Hitting the mark is about entering into relationship with God. It's about entering into relationship with a family of God. It's about the healing of your soul. It's about the restoration of the world. It's about crossing ethnic and socioeconomic and religious boundaries in, other, in order to reach people with this transformative gospel to be rescued by the Lord. That's the gospel, and, and it just can't be contained by simply the evangelical gospel. Number two, the social gospel by political progressives. Hang with me here. I have some critiques, but you'll get to see critique of other things soon, okay? The social gospel. Uh, key beliefs of the social gospel. Uh, First of all, Jesus is portrayed as a political revolutionary. He's someone who cared about the poor and the marginalized and was trying to uh, lead a political revolution, basically. Uh, In fact, it's that that got him killed. Jesus was killed by the empire because they saw him as a threat to the status quo. Third, America is the current empire. So this is true if you're here, if you're in, you know, the UK, it might be Great Britain, but whatever current empire you're a part of, maybe if you're in in China, it's China. um, You just realize that that's the latest iteration of the empire and the empire, Roman empire, American empire, Chinese empire, whatever empire you're a part of always works to, uh, to oppress and marginalize people. In fact, most of these core beliefs kind of sit within what would be politically called like a soft Marxism that sees most relationships in the world in terms of power dynamic, who has the power, and most structures in the world in terms of keeping power with some people and keeping other people out of power. So the social gospel would say that Jesus was against that. He was killed by the empire for being against that. America is the current empire. Uh, Jesus is now on the march. He is trying worldwide to, you know, help those who cannot help themselves. And then the church should take an activist role in American politics. Oftentimes this activist role that the church is supposed to take in the social gospel is 
yes, it has social elements like, um, you know, feeding people and giving people healthcare and, and, and helping people like that, but it also wants to tear down existing power structures and replace them with something else, all in the name of Jesus. Now, there is a lot that's actually helpful about this. Um, so let me just get to a few of them. First of all, it uses the language of kingdom. When Jesus talks about the gospel, he uses the language of kingdom. And this is the only one of these four American gospels we're going to look at today that also use the language of kingdom. So that's good. Secondly, um, it, it realizes that there is a need for both preaching the gospel and demonstrating the gospel. Like it's not enough to just believe something. You need to live it out. And that's good. That's a good thing for it to realize. Third, um, it, it, it understands that there's both individual and institutional sin. We commit sins as individuals, but also we, there are systems of sin that we participate in sometimes that can be harmful to people. And to recognize that people are harmed by the sins of the many and the individuals is a helpful understanding. This is all throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, but it's something that we've struggled, I think, as Americans. We are so individualistic that we really struggle to think of institutional and, and systems of sin. We tend to only think at the personal level. So it's good that this points to both. Finally, there's an emphasis on the dignity of all people. And Every follower of Jesus should be all for that. God created you on purpose for a purpose. He sent his only son to die for you, to to, to restore the world, to restore you because he loves you so much that you're of infinite value to him. Every single person that he's created is of infinite value, infinite worth. And so the social gospel understands that and puts an emphasis on the dignity of all people. And that is, that's good. But it does have plenty of shortcomings, enough that we're not even going to list all of them, but I want to list a few at least. First of all, Jesus never went to Rome. If Jesus primarily was about a political gospel to overthrow the existing Roman Empire and replace it with something better, he should have been more politically engaged. But Jesus doesn't go into Rome. In fact, Jesus ministers almost exclusively to Jews because that seems to be his mission. Now, his followers, interestingly enough, very much thought that Jesus was going to be political, that the Messiah, the Savior, was going to be political, that this Savior was going to come overthrow Rome and overthrow the emperor and take the emperor's place and have a new kingdom and a new revolution right there. All of his followers thought he was going to do that. That's why just days before he is arrested, tried, and crucified, his followers who have been following him now and hearing about the kingdom of God for three years are still arguing about who's going to sit at his right hand and who's going to sit at his left hand whenever he overthrows Caesar. That's where they think this is headed. If Jesus wanted to do that, if that's the way he was thinking about the world, he would have had a whole group of followers who apparently would have followed him to Rome in order to try to do just that. But he never, ever went to Rome. In fact, Jesus' approach to politics was what one scholar has called intentional indifference. Whenever he's asked a political question, the most political he gets is give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. In other words, pay your taxes. Isn't it a shame that one of the only political things Jesus told us to do was to pay our taxes? (laughs) But that's what his command is. He had two disciples in his group of 12 who were highly political. One is Simon the Zealot. Zealots wanted to see the Roman government overthrown, felt like the boot of Rome had been on the back of Jewish necks for long enough. And then he had Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew worked and enriched himself for, by working for the Roman empire. These two guys 
who politically could not have been any more different. These two guys who lived in the most politically hot, t- like it's, you think politics feels hot in the United States right now? It knows nothing compared to first century Rome. The Jewish people felt like they'd been invaded by outsiders and forced to work underneath something that was totally unjust. It was really hot politically. Jesus pulls these guys with opposite political opinions into his inner circle. And he never sides with either one of them. He doesn't go to Rome. He's intentionally indifferent. Jesus was not a progressive by the current moral definition, right? The social gospel is often accompanied by so much inclusiveness that it almost never wants to make a moral judgment about what anyone is doing. And so there's just this reality that Jesus has very high standards of morality that don't look like progressive society today. For for instance, Jesus, Jesus cared deeply about life in all of its forms. Jesus had a pretty stringent sexual ethic and probably, I mean, he was a celibate Jewish rabbi living in the first century. And in, in all of the scriptures, he probably has the most stringent sexual ethic of anybody. Jesus said, it's not enough to do the right thing. You have to do the right thing for the right reasons. Oof. I mean, sometimes it's easy to look like we're doing the right thing, but how many of us have done the right thing while in our heads just really being grumbly about it or out loud being grumbly about it? I had to figure out when we first got married, uh, my, my wife had certain expectations around Christmas traditions with her family. Her family's lovely. I just didn't want to spend seven straight days with them. Like they're lovely. I just didn't, they're, it's a very big family. It's loud all the time. You know, we had just gotten married. There were a lot of kids there. Oh, kids at 22, who wants to have kids? Ugh. We had two later. Um, so, so we would go to these holiday celebrations and they were so loud. And I remember um, that it became evident to me. I was, it probably took me a few years to figure this out. Okay, I'm gonna have to go to these things. I'm gonna be kind of miserable at them, but I have to go. So I can let everyone know that I'm feeling miserable or I can actually just go and try to like not look miserable. The one put me in hot water with my wife and the other choice like made our relationship way better. So if I'm gonna do it anyway, I should just go and try to have a good attitude. And here's what's amazing. Once I tried to pretend to have fun, I started having a little bit of fun. I started enjoying it a little bit, right? Jesus doesn't want you to just do the right thing. He wants you to do the right thing for the right reason. Sometimes it requires us to do the right thing for a while before we can actually do them for the right reasons. But he's not just looking at outside actions. He's looking at inward heart. That's what Christ is pushing for. So, so by, by any moral definition of the current progressive like society, culture, politics, like Jesus is much more stringent than that. So it can't just be that. Number four, uh, it, equals, uh, it equates discipleship with political activism. It feels like, like if we could just get more programs in place, if we could just help more marginalized, we do that, then, then that, that would be the gospel. But that's not actually a call to personal discipleship. Again, it's not bad to want to see spiritual and social justice in the world, so to see the poor and the immigrant and the marginalized helped out. That's not, that's not bad. But when that becomes the whole gospel, apart from eternal realities or Jesus kingdom ethic or, 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 or the community, the body of Christ, apart from proclaiming the gospel out loud to people and seeing lives and hearts transformed, like it's just incomplete. There's a lot about it that's good, but there's a lot about it that's just incomplete, which leads us to conservative, uh, if you're conservative politically, buckle up, please. The political gospel, progressives, you can ease out for a second, okay? Key beliefs to the political gospel. This is called several things, by the way. I was struggling with what to call it today. I'm going to call it the political gospel. 
We could call it the, the straight up American gospel, or we could call it the Christian nationalist gospel. I don't know. People get triggered by different words. So I was trying really hard to figure out what to call it. But here's the core beliefs of what I would call the political gospel today. And there is some overlap with that more politically progressive social gospel. But here's some of it. First of all, America was founded as a Christian nation. Secondly, America has gotten away from her roots. And finally, the right elected officials and the right legislation will return us to the roots that we abandoned. This is the political gospel. It it believes if we could get the right people in office or the right legislation, we could kind of return to like a golden age, a golden era of Christianity in this country. And so it focuses almost exclusively on that, or it focuses on it quite a lot. There are things that are helpful about this, by the way. So first of all, Christianity is necessary for human flourishing. This, This gospel really believes that, that people should be Christians. In fact, it believes it's so hard that it wants to kind of make them be Christians by the laws that it passes sometimes, depending on if you get a more extreme version of it or not. But the basic like, impulse behind it that Christianity is necessary for human flourishing, the New Testament agrees with this. Jesus agrees with this. Um, human depravity in this model is taken seriously. It is a good thing to be able to point to the culture around us and to be able to identify where it does not measure up to the way of Jesus. Also, and this is just as important, It is a good thing to be able to point to our own lives and determine where they are not measuring up to the way of Jesus. If all we are ever doing is judging and critiquing society, we will forget the fact that the thing that most endangers my relationship with God is not the culture out there, but the sin nature in here. I am my own worst enemy when it comes to this stuff. I don't need culture around me to make me mess up, sin, turn my back away from God, treat people poorly. I don't need the culture to do that. I often do that all on my own because I'm, I'm internally, as we all are, fairly selfish. It's the kind of thing that the gospel pulls out of us over time. Recognizing that humans are depraved, like it recognizes that. And it believes that following Jesus is the answer. Finally, There's an emphasis on good moral behavior, right? That that Jesus called us not just to a set of beliefs, but to a way of living that is more stringent than the way the culture around us is going to choose to live. So all of these things I think are helpful, but it has a number of shortcomings. Similar to the social gospel, I don't have space to list them all. There are a lot. So let me jump in here. First of all, there's nothing like it in the New Testament. This ought to give us pause right here, but let me just say a little bit more about what I mean by that. In the New Testament, the gospel is a transnational reality that goes beyond boundaries of statehood or citizenship the world over and creates a new community, the church, to represent this good news of Jesus. That's how the New Testament paints it. There is no Christian nation in the New Testament. Here's where we get sometimes mixed up. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Israelites, Israel was set aside intentionally to be blessed and to be a blessing to others. That was their purpose. They were supposed to help connect the entire world to God as a nation. Therefore, as that nation went, as the kings went, as the leadership of that nation went, the whole nation went, and as that nation went, the world went. And and because they were supposed to be the key connector to God, they had as a nation, a responsibility to point the way to God. There is no New Testament equivalent to that at all. In fact, Israel ends up being the cocoon that births the church and so it is the church worldwide not tied to any specific nation or political party or, or, or political uh, ideology that is supposed to now take this gospel message forward. So there's nothing like an idea that there's a nation that's supposed to be a Christian beacon for the world in the New Testament. That, that's not a concept that, that exists in the scriptures. Secondly, it creates an us 
versus them mindset. And this is majorly problematic because if, if I start to believe that America is a Christian nation or it was, and it could be again, if we would just be able to get those people out of office, that legislation undone, that Supreme Court decision made, if we could just get those things, then we were a shining city on a hill. And we would be again, if we could just get rid of those people, then my entire approach to the world is I've got to get rid of them. They hate God. They hate America. They hate your children. Hide your kids, hide your wife, hide everything, right? Like that's, that, that's the mindset that you start to get into. Which means if your church is focused on that, you will become known more for what you are against than what you are for. If your church focuses on that, you will become known for one message because I think every church only gets one message. And that message will be, we need to fight for our rights and get them out of the way. But the message of the gospel is we need to serve them and present the gospel to them so that they can be included in the church as well. This takes people from being your enemies to being your responsibility. I'm not supposed to hate you. I'm supposed to serve you. I'm supposed to help you. I'm supposed to see you as a potential brother or sister in Jesus Christ who desperately needs Jesus because I was once where you are now. So we're not enemies. We're not enemies. No, you have infinite worth because God went an infinite distance for you. And so we don't want to create an us versus them mindset. Similarly, it tends to traffic in fear and anger because, right, if it's always them, they need to get out of the way. Or if they win, then the whole nation will go to pot or be destroyed or whatever. They hate you. They hate the country. They hate. If it's always that, then what you do is you, you whip up people in fear and anger. And you can raise a lot of money and you can get a lot of people to sit through that, but you cannot solve problems there. When you're fearful and angry all the time, you just can't solve problems there. Also, the way to make the world the kind of place you want to live in is to live the kind of way you want the world to live. I don't think most of us want to live in constant fear and anger all the time. In fact, and I'm not asking you for you to raise your hand and identify yourself or something, aren't a lot of us just exhausted? by the fear and anger constantly all around us? What if the gospel doesn't stir it up, but leads to a better, more healing way? The political gospel also equates discipleship with political activism, just like the social gospel does, which is a major misstep on its part. Discipleship is so much deeper than that. Like what you'll start to think is, hey, look at that. It all backed out. Uh, What you'll start to think is that my discipleship in Jesus is proven by the way that I vote every two years. Occasionally, I get a bonus recall election to vote in, and then I can really show my discipleship. Like you see, when you start to think that basically your following of Jesus boils down to who you vote for every couple of years, you are missing out on a huge swath of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So it gets some things right um, uh, in that it, it's, it cares about the world. It cares ab- about people following Jesus. It, it sees the sin in our culture. Those are all good things. But the last thing here, it's been a historical failure. And let me give you a couple of reasons why. We need to know, first of all, that America is not the first country that's been known at some point in its history as a Christian nation or has had some of its founders or some of its important political leaders be Christians over the years. Rome made Christianity the official religion of Rome at one point in its history once it discovered that it would be politically expedient to do so. 
a number of European countries had baptism into the Christian faith as a part of what it took to be a citizen. The problem is while you can mandate people to get baptized and you can mandate people to profess all kinds of things in a church building, that does not change hearts. And every place in the world where where the church has gotten in bed with the state, Christianity has been decimated. Every place, without exception, look for over the last 2000 years, like every single place. In the United States, Christianity got heavily involved in politics, starting with the moral majority in the 1970s and the 1980s. And since that time, church membership in the United States has gone down by 30%. It's a historical failure. It was a failure hundreds of years ago when it was tried in Europe and Martin Luther and John Calvin and other reformers were against it. It's a, politi- it's a, it's a failure now. And what it does is it makes people think that Christians are mostly about power and wealth and fame. And what's fascinating is perhaps some of the three biggest idols in our culture right now are power and wealth and fame. And so it makes Christians look like they are after the same thing that the world around them is. And if that's the case, why is their message any more helpful to me than what I'm already doing? The social gospel has major problems. The political gospel has major problems. Finally, no matter what your political persuasion is, you can calm down now, okay? Finally, the prosperity gospel. Key beliefs. God loves you. Solid, right? Good starting place. I like it. Second, God's victory over sickness, poverty, and failure are your inheritance. And finally, the best is yet to come. The prosperity gospel basically says that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is supposed to be for your health, your wealth, your prosperity. And if you just believe enough, if you really trust in Jesus, then you will no longer have problems with poverty. You will no longer have problems with health. God wants you to be successful. He wants you to have a nice home. Don't be ashamed to ask him for things. And if you'll just donate $49.95 right here today to this ministry, you'll have everything your mind ever wanted. Some version of that. It's easy to get wealthy teaching the prosperity gospel. It's harder for people to get wealthy believing the prosperity gospel. Now, there's a few things that are helpful about it. First of all, there's an emphasis on a loving God in the midst of hardship. Hey, that's good. How many of us have walked through a difficult time where it felt maybe hard to love or even believe in God? And this this gospel mindset says that God loves you even when you're going through a hard time. That's helpful. Secondly, it has faith that God can do miracles. Jesus performed miracles. The early church performed miracles. I believe I've seen miraculous transformation in people's lives and miraculous healings in people's lives today, but we underplay it sometimes in church and this particular movement doesn't. I think that's good. Third, there's, it has a holistic view of human flourishing. In other words, when it says that, um, that God loves you and wants to do something in your life, it actually believes that. A lot of times people in this vein open up soup kitchens and all kinds of things to help their neighborhoods and their cities because they recognize, right, that you need to teach the gospel and demonstrate the gospel. Both things need to happen. So all of this is good. That's what's helpful. Shortcomings, some pretty big ones. First of all, it's not the gospel Jesus preached. Well, that's problematic. But secondly, it's the opposite of how Jesus lived. The very best person died the very worst death. His disciples, 10 of them were murdered for their faith in him. Did they just not believe enough? Did they just not donate enough to the televangelist ministry? How did they get murdered for their faith? One of the disciples took his own life. Another died on the island of Patmos. It's it's the opposite of how Jesus lived. It's the opposite of how the early church lived. It leads to disillusionment. There are stories of people who 
donate some money or believe enough or they get a, you know, prayed over hanky from their favorite televangelist in the mail and then they have like something good happens in their life. So you can absolutely find stories like that. There's also lots of stories of people who lost lots of money being promised that if they would just give a certain amount then they would get a return on that investment. And by the way, we're a church that believes in generosity here at Inland Hills Church. We're a church that believes in investing in our community. But we have never said, I will never say that if you give a certain amount of money, you'll get a certain amount back. No, we, we give sacrificially here. My family and I give sacrificially because we want to bless the community around us, the world around us with both the gospel and by meeting their needs. So we don't do it for what we get back out of it. We do it to trust God with our finances. This can lead to disillusionment when you're expecting a specific return on whatever your investment was. It also blesses materialism as discipleship. Like the way you know that you're a good disciple in the health, wealth, prosperity movement is, is by how much you own, how much you buy, how nice your car is, all that kind of stuff. And one of the biggest things that we struggle with as a nation, materialism ends up being blessed as discipleship within this movement. It's got major, major problems. So the evangelical gospel, the social gospel, the political gospel, the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. All of them have something that's good and something that's truthful in it. But if you've heard those before, if you've heard them your entire life and you have found them wanting, it may be a good idea to ask the question, what if there's more to the gospel than this? What if what Mark says at the beginning of his letter that all of this is the good news of Jesus Christ. What if that could actually transform you and then transform your family and then transform your church and your place of vocation and your cities? What if that's how the gospel actually worked because it was so beautiful and so transformative and so cosmic in its scope that it can't be contained in any of these? That's the question we're gonna take up next week. And that's the question that I think drives whether we're willing to share our faith or not. Are we convinced that there's more to it than these things? And if so, just try and stop us from sharing it. God, thank you for our time together today. Lord, um, I just, I know this was a ton of information. And uh, I just pray, God, that, um, that at the end of, of everything we've talked about, that we're able to say, that we're thankful for where your gospel is reflected in these understandings, God, but we also recognize their shortcomings. And Lord, what we want is more of you, more gospel, more good news. We want it to be bigger and larger in scope, and we thank you that it is. And Father, as we meditate on these kinds of things this week, I just pray that next week as we, as we dive into the New Testament and look closely at what it is you say the gospel is and why it is that we all desperately need it, Lord, would you just give us a an increasing passion. God, for, for those of us who maybe haven't chosen to make Jesus the Lord of our lives, would you give us a desire to do so? Father, for those of us who maybe have been following him for a long time, but we found that our walk has felt dry and maybe we felt far from you, would you remind us of the passion we once had for this way of living, for this Jesus who invites us into a new cosmic reality? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Inland Hills Church Weekly Messages podcast. To learn more about Inland Hills, including info about our church ministries and ways to get involved, visit inlandhills.com. To stay up to date with our weekly messages, make sure you subscribe and leave a review so others can find our messages of hope and encouragement. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next week.